We are at the tail end of the book of 1 Timothy and matching a lot of letters in the New Testament and, and, and several of Paul's own letters at the very end. This, is, this letter begin to reflect the personal side that Paul is writing to a particular congregation with particular issues and to a particular set of pastor elders that, that he's addressing. And, and you're seeing that. The, the, this week and next as we finish 1 Timothy, you're just going to see some personal instructions. And here he wants to give two final exhortations to the congregation. He wants to address two things. And next week, as we'll see, he'll address a couple things to Pastor Timothy and to the leadership of the church. But before we, before we jump into this, let, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to minister through his word this morning. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things from your word and help us to take it and receive it and help it to form us, to give encouragement where it is needed, and to exhort us to change where you demand it. Father, thank you that you're, you are a God of both truth and grace. And help us to sense that even in your word this morning as it shepherds us to live in this world but not to be of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins this final two exhortations to the church with this language, teach and urge these things. He, he's telling the pastors, he's telling Pastor Timothy to not only teach these, but, but to urge these. That, that's an interesting addition. Not just to teach it and hold it loosely, but to, but to urge it. Urge can be translated, the, the Greek word behind urge could be something like insist, exhort, or even encourage. All of those kind of are under that sense of urge. Maybe it's sometimes it, there needs to be a hard conversation about someone's life that needs to be addressed. Other times it needs to be, be encouraged. They just need to be spoken to gently, say, this, this, is, this is ideal for you. This is what God wants for you. Either way that the church is commanded to speak that way. And by the way, brothers and sisters, it doesn't have to always come necessarily from the office of the pastor or elder. It, it could just be brothers and sisters themselves exhorting one another on to live faithfully, to believe that Jesus is Lord, to submit to him in the details of our lives. Like discipleship is, is literally iron sharpening iron, right? It's, it's life on life. It's disciple-making relationships that are happening throughout a congregation that this text applies to all of us. It's not just a formal conversation in a pastoral office. It's just part of loving one another and caring for one another. And then Paul gives two exhortations, two, two final statements, and I just summarize them in this way. In verses 3 and 5, he says, beware false teachers. In verses 6 through 10, he says, beware the love of money. And we just want to hear those today. Ken just read verses 3 to 5, and they're loaded with a lot of different ins and outs of the nature of false teachers. It even says, if anyone teaches, like he's not even necessarily thinking of a specific person. But think of how much more limited it was in those days. This is, this is the days before Google. These are the days before YouTube. That you have immediate access you're not, even, you're not even spotted, right, at some gathering of some false teacher where a brother or sister can say, hey, hey, are, are, are you sitting under his or her teaching? Because let me just warn you, I, I'm worried about that. 
Like You can literally just be in your living room listening to whatever you want to listen to whenever you want to listen to it. And no one would know that. So maybe especially in the day of internet, podcast, blogs, and TV, we need to be all the more aware. So let me give you five false teacher red flags that, that, that flow out of this text. This is me kind of, kind of chewing on it a bit and offering you five false teacher red flags. The first is this. The first red flag of a false teacher is they focus too little on Christ. There's too little Christ. They fail to teach in a way that rightly understands Christ's own teaching and work. They fail to emphasize the gospel. That's what Paul's saying in verse 3. A different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't agree with it. It doesn't line up. When Jesus focused in his teaching ministry, that is the kind of teaching ministry that the church should have. A ministry about the work and the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. A false teacher focuses too little on Christ. If you don't hear enough Jesus, enough Christ, enough specific on the gospel, if you walk away, be confused on what the gospel is, or even hear a different gospel, red flag. Second red flag, too little godliness. Verse 3 ends with that, right? They, they, they do not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness, Red flag for a false teacher is they fail to connect God's truth with a godly life. And this may even be evidenced in their own lives. Again, not that, in, not that a teacher is perfect like Jesus, of course not. But if you're just seeing, number one, that their own lives manifest a disconnect between what is true and what is lived out rightly, let alone that what they're teaching expresses, red flag. Here's a third, too much self-promotion. Verse 4 speaks about them having a pride and a self-importance that makes much of their ministry in too little of Christ's. To be honest, it's hard in today's celebrity culture to not see this everywhere. We live in an age of celebrities, and it's not just that the people make themselves celebrities, it's the people love celebrities. Again, literally, Kim Kardashian gets Google searched Ten times more than Jesus Christ every single year. People love celebrities. They're oddly drawn to it. But you can see that infiltrate ministries, where their ministry's in their own name. It's about their glory and their good. When you see too much self-promotion, red flag, there's not enough room for Jesus at the podium. Here's a, here's a fourth red flag. Too much controversy. I, I, what, what I think verses 4 and 5 are saying, Paul's words are, are something like this. These false teachers have an obsession with controversies and quarrels that leads to a ministry of chaos. They're always looking for a fight. They're, they're always picking on this and that. They're, Paul even talks about them kind of engaging with the definition of words. There's too much of a fight. You just don't see grace. You don't see a simplicity of the cross and the beauty of the gospel. And here's the last red flag, and maybe this is one that is just so sorely needed in our day, and it transitions well to Paul's second warning. The fifth red flag of a false teacher is that there's too, too much benefits packaged Christianity. They preach a message that focuses on the personal benefits of Christianity. 
Now, this is subtle. And brothers and sisters, in our day, this is hard to see. I'm not, there's the, I don't think Paul's speaking simply about as if it's mere prosperity gospel, like it's just a mere financial gain approach. I don't think it's that obvious. I mean, there, that, that exists, where a version of Christianity is presented that you're just going to become rich and famous. Like, that exists, but that's easy to spot. That's obvious. I think it's, I think it's a little different than even the language there. The language in verse 5, the, the language of gain is less about wealth. It rather refers to a preaching that replaces the good news with the good life. Oh, it's so subtle. A preaching that replaces the good news of Christ with the good life of the Christian. That is so subtle. Because we want to hear those things. We want, we want to hear things that are good about us. We want to grow in certain ways. It is so hard to not take special grace and make it manifest in common grace ways. Wherever people preach the gospel, whenever people preach the gospel message where it's primarily about a better quality of life, personal well-being, or gain as measured in a materialist human consumer society, they fit Paul's warning. You want proof of this? Go to Amazon.com, type in Christian inspiration, and probably the top 100 books, the bestsellers, will fit this. Here's a title of one. I won't even say the author, but you may recognize it. Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. There it is. It's diluting Jesus. Oh, he's there. There's Christian images. It's sold in all your Christian bookstores, but it's diluted. What, what you're drawn to is about your life, about your potential. And all of a sudden, if you're not careful, it's your life has eclipsed Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I doubt that verse will be in that book. There, it wouldn't fit the message. And that's just one of them. That, that, was, that was number 23 out of the top 100. You should have read the others. We don't have time to list them all. It, it'll be hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Blessed life. Again, what they mean by blessed is not that I am so secure in Christ that no matter what confronts me, I'm fine. It's blessed because I'm so thankful for my husband or my wife or I'm so thankful for my kids or hashtag blessed, look at our family picture or we just had a vacation, hashtag blessed or look at our new remodeled kitchen, hashtag blessed. You see what I mean? All of a sudden, these Christian things just materialize into just into this, this personal gain, personal benefit, benefits package Christianity. That is so tempting for even churches to want to sell. It's a, it may be a symptom of the Christian life, God's blessing in some way, but brothers and sisters, God is blessing the church in China right now. God is blessing the church in India right now. God is blessing the church in places where there is a very high unemployment rate where there are dictators in place. God is blessing those churches. It is not because he's blessing families so they can say, hashtag blessed. Look at the health of our family. Look at the wealth of our family. 
when they can, if they're going to say hashtag blessed, it's going to be because of the special grace life in Christ. Oh, that's a tough one for us to see because we personally want it ourselves. That's what Paul's saying in verses three to five. He gives us some red flags for false teachers. His second exhortation is in six to 10, and it fits well this benefits package Christianity. In light of that last warning, that last red flag, he now turns in verse six to just the danger of personal gain and wealth. And he actually talks about something called contentment. That can be a hard thing to define. Paul transitions by stating that the goal or the fruit of godliness is contentment. What is Christian contentment? I would say it's something like this. Christian contentment is when a person has such a relationship with God that what they have is what they need. Christian contentment is when a person has such a relationship with God that what they have is what they need. They start with what they have, and the relationship with God allows them to see it as what they need. Because like the manna in the wilderness, God did not give them for a full season at one time, but each and every day. What they had for that day is what they needed. And all the type A Israelites were like, dude, we got tomorrow too. Like I got this spreadsheet of a, of a, of a six-month plan. God, you got to be helping us know about manna six months out. And God would say to all of those, what you have today is what you need today. That's hard to rest in that. The only way those type A Israelites in the wilderness could do that is if they completely entrusted themselves to the God who is the giver. That's the only way. It was only going to happen when they could say, Lord, I will trust you. Well, that's hard. Because you ate your food and you're full and you're immediately like, what about tomorrow? And Oh, I got to trust in God for tomorrow. That's right. I got, I got to trust in God for tomorrow. Now we're getting to that point of understanding what Christian contentment is. They trust that God will give daily bread. Listen to a, a famous text of, on contentment, Philippians 4, 5 to 7. We often start with 6. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We often, we often just do 6 and 7, but the last phrase of verse 5 is so important. Philippians 4, 5 ends with, the Lord is near. And then you get 6 and 7. The Lord is near. Like, before he's ever going to tell you what God is going to do, the text tells you where God is at. Like, he is not far off. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on. The Lord is near. Therefore, what are you anxious about? One of my little kids was scared of every possible stranger. I mean, they literally, they've been going to church since they were little. You would have thought they were so used to strangers. But any stranger came up, they would just like freak out, panic attack, even if they're like seven feet away. Until they got close to mom or dad. The moment they would get close to mom and dad, and boom, they're wrapping up around the ankles, right? They're holding on. Then they'll look at whoever they want in the eye because they know dad or mom's right there. 
But if, if they're not grabbing onto dad or mom, they are panicking. It's almost like Philippians 4, 5 is saying, okay, grab on to your creator and savior's leg. Go ahead. Okay, now look at, you. Now look at the world. Go ahead, stand on his feet like a little kid would do. We're a... We're a, we're a Maybe a dad is walking with a limp because they got a 40-pounder on one leg, hanging on for dear life, laughing and giggling. You have that mental picture in your mind of that little kid holding on to your leg as you're trying to walk across the living room and there's giggles? Now picture the Christian grabbing on to God the Father, wrapping around that leg, standing on his feet. What are you worried about in that moment? Who can touch you? What that you do not have will your Father not give you in his perfect time and his perfect way. Does not the Father love to give good gifts to his children? If an earthly parent loves to care for the children, how much more does the Father in heaven do so? That's why before in Philippians 4, before the Apostle Paul ever gets to not you not being anxious, he reminds you whose leg you're grasping onto. And Paul gives the reason in verse 7 for this. And listen to this. He, he tries to connect this in a deep way. He says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Birth and death reveal the disconnect between life and material things. So then why is the love of money the root of all kinds of evils? Let me just make a few things on this as, as we try to bring this to a head. The dream of wealth, and hear this, brothers and sisters, the dream of wealth can gain a demonic hold over a person and over a nation. Jesus himself said, a person cannot serve God and money. He said that about nothing else. He didn't say that about anything else, but about money he was particular. There is almost a demonic hold over our lives, over money and wealth and prosperity, and it can be not only over our lives, but over our nation. A person who collects many material possessions suggests that life is no longer being accepted, thankfully, from the hand of God. In fact, you could even argue that a love of money builds a selfish dividing wall against God and our neighbors. It alienates us from our king. In fact, in the Old Testament, the mere possession of wealth, and I know that's not how we often talk about what's too much. In the Old Testament, there's even prophetic warnings that even the mere possession of wealth, not that you're even pursuing it, but it just kind of fell into your lap. Even the mere possession of wealth had its own set of temptations for which you should be careful. So what does this mean for those of us living in the richest country in the world? When money and possessions ensnare us, this opens up a whole new set of temptations, including the controlling effects of many harmful passions that plunge a person into a sea of despair and ruin. Happiness all of a sudden becomes what we can do or buy. Satisfaction gets connected to material things. Oh, I love the new car. I love the new shirt. Relationships surround material things and events and activities. Our children and grandchildren become master consumers who develop an appetite for material possessions that is never satisfied. Shopping becomes less a necessity and more a skill. 
We all become expert consumers. Debt is normal, we say to ourselves. Everybody has it. Holidays are controlled by consumerism. Our stuff is everywhere. You, you want some stats on this? The average American home has 300,000 items in it. The average size of American houses has nearly tripled over the past 50 years. Tripled. 10% of Americans rent off-site storage. And the fastest growing segment of, of commercial real estate over the past four decades has been off-site storage rentals. 3% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the world's toys. American homes have more television sets than people, and those sets are on, on average, in the American home for one-third of the day. When we lived in California, our neighbor down the road was a coroner. And I remember striking up a conversation with him on a Saturday, and we, we, and we were kind of talking about his work, and he said, you can, you can always tell a native Southern Californian, especially from L.A. County. I said, how's that? He's like, well, when you're doing the autopsy, this is interesting, conversation this Saturday morning. When you're doing the autopsy, there's, a, there's kind of a, 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 a pinkish, grayish color to their lung. The smog, and so especially, he goes, he goes, it's gotten better the last probably 15, 20 years with, with various kind of technologies. But somebody who's lived in Southern California in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you could tell that they weren't there just for seven years. Like there's like a brownish stain in their lungs from the smog. And you don't technically always even see it, it just kind of is there. As I'm looking at my little kid playing, thinking, what is he breathing in? How does materialism, which isn't just in Southern California, by the way, how does materialism just kind of seep into our bodies and our lives that we can't even see it? It's not like the people he's talking about were constantly coughing from the age of 15 or 20. I mean, they, they didn't feel any different than you or I would feel, but the quality of air was so bad it was actually staining their lungs. How has materialism seeped into our lives in a way that's hard for us to even see? What then does the love of money mean? It means instead of Christ, money and material possessions are where we place our faith, where we place our trust, where we focus our devotion and service, and where we find our satisfaction and our joy. Now, you just want to, uh, uh, if you just want a little materialism autopsy of what's been seeping into your life or mine, ask yourself those questions. In what ways does material possessions and money give you a, something you can trust in, something you're devoted to, or something that gives you satisfaction and joy more than Christ? And it won't just be maybe a simple thought that will reflect that. It's going to have to be the ministerial work of the Spirit in our lives to reveal that to us. Brothers and sisters, may this not be us. May this not be us. The average income, family 
income, whole family, in the world today is $9,300. How can you and I make five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 times that? And not think like a native Southern Californian, we've got some pink brown stain on us too. At least that's just what the Old Testament prophets would warn. Not that it's for sure, not that it's a guarantee, but just a general warning. If you've got 300,000 items in your home, if you're an expert consumer, you are percentage-wise top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. Don't compare yourself to Bezos. Compare yourself to basically entire countries where you make more than the average person. How can your lungs not be tainted by that? Browned, singed a little bit. And it's morphed you in such a way that when you think blessed, hashtag blessed, you're not thinking Jesus. You're thinking your family, your house, your kitchen, your car, your stuff. Instinctively. Well, you say you wouldn't want to live in California. Maybe you heard that like, I'm glad I didn't grow up in California. Well, you're living in America, the wealthiest country in the world. And if Paul can say this to these Ephesians, maybe some wealthy Ephesians 2,000 years ago, what do you think he would write to Hope Church today? Brothers and sisters, may this not be us. May our prayer be that the Lord would open our eyes to our love of stuff and help us to seek and trust in his provisions alone. Give us today. Maybe this is why we did something on the Lord's Prayer recently. Maybe this is why we should say the Lord's Prayer weekly or daily in our families. Give us today our daily bread. That's a prayer for contentment. Give us today our daily bread. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide our minds from the lure of false teachers and guard our hearts from the love of money. And we know, we know this is not easy. We know this is difficult. And Father, I worry that for all of us, like those long-term Southern Californians, that just the, the smog of wealth just gets inhaled. It is impossible to avoid. We have to breathe. We have to shop. And it infiltrates our very being, and we don't even see it because, like the smog, we see it when we're looking over the valley, but we don't see it in our front yard. We don't see it in our living rooms, but it's there. Father, protect the brothers and sisters in this church from the danger of false teachers and protect them from the dangers of a benefits package Christianity that they may see blessing and use it sparingly and only to refer to the blessing, true blessing, that comes from Jesus Christ as Lord and that they would see suffering and lack and even want as God's own way of pruning us forming us, shaping us, and directing us to trust in him and him alone. Because as you, Father, remind us through Paul in Philippians, you are near. We thank you for that. Father, as we close with a final song, guide us. May our 
lips and our hearts sing praises to you as God's family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.